We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 5. I want to read verses 27 through 39 for you. Luke 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Luke says that Jesus saw a tax collector. Lots of people saw him. In fact, they saw him day after day. The way motorists see a person working in the toll booth on a turnpike. And probably took little notice of him. There were some people who just tried to avoid him. And then there were probably some who looked at him with disgust. They despised him. He was a tax collector. And people have never cared much for the company of tax collectors then or now. But people working for the IRS are a hundred times more popular in our day than tax collectors were in Levi's day. Tax collector was a citizen of Israel who went to work, usually a citizen of Israel, who went to work for Israel's conquerors, the Romans. He took tax money from his own people and he gave it to the Romans primarily to fund their military operations, the occupation. And he did that for money. When people looked at Levi, they saw a traitor. Or, because tax collectors were famous for their corruption, they saw a greedy and dishonest, low-level bureaucrat. Or, they just saw a loser. Now, Luke says that Jesus saw this tax collector. He had his eye on him. He saw all the things that other people saw, but he saw something they didn't see. He really saw Levi. Saw what he would become. Not a traitor who sold his life for money, but a saint who would sacrifice his life for God. Not a low-level bureaucrat, but a high-level apostle. Not a loser, but a blessing. Now, you think other people saw that? Maybe his mother, his best friend, caught glimpses of it sometimes. You think even Levi himself saw that? Or Matthew, as he's more commonly called. Probably not, but Jesus saw. And when he sees you, he sees things that other people miss. He sees what you can't even imagine. 
He sees what he's going to make of you. But Matthew couldn't be made into the wonderful man that Jesus had in mind while he was sitting in that toll booth. He first had to get up and follow Jesus. And similarly with us, we want God to do something with us, something special. And you know what? He's willing. But it's going to mean getting up, following Jesus, and leaving old ways behind. If you're wanting Jesus to do something in your life and you're wondering what's taking him so long, take a look around. Are you ensconced in your old life? Are you sedentary and passive? If so, don't expect much to change. Jesus steers our lives when we're moving, or more precisely, when we're following If you're not actively following Jesus, if you're sitting immovable in your routine, how do you expect him to guide you? You need to get up. Some of the first changes we experience when we begin following Jesus happen in our relationships. And you can see how that worked in Matthew's life. He's been following Jesus for what? A day, a week? We're not sure. And already he's trying to introduce his old friends to Jesus. One of the first things he does is throw a dinner party with Jesus as the guest of honor and all his old friends. Remember who they are, traitors, losers, dishonest bureaucrats, all his old friends as his dinner companions. Now, I can imagine how Jesus responded when Matthew came to him and said, hey, I want you to come to a dinner and told him who was on the guest list. He probably said, I'd love to do that. And he really meant it. But while going to Matthew's house for dinner was a loving, good thing to do, it was not a politically savvy move. It'd be like a candidate for the House of Representatives in a mostly black southern region accepting an invitation to a Ku Klux Klan fundraiser. Even if he went with the very best of intentions, it's pretty sure that the voters wouldn't understand. Luke describes the people at the party as tax collectors and others. And Matthew's version of this story, Matthew, he's the one who the story's about, calls them tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's important to understand that in first century Israel, quite unlike 21st century America, eating a meal with someone was a significant social and symbolic act. When a first century Jew ate with someone, when he had table fellowship, with him. He was communicating acceptance of that person. So for Jesus to eat with tax collectors, traitors, dishonest people, and sinners, you know, the losers, that was tantamount to accepting them. But Jesus didn't regard accepting people as the same thing as approving of their behaviors. That's significant. The tax collectors and sinners understood that. They were under no illusion that Jesus was somehow condoning their sins by eating with them. But other people didn't see it that way. To them, eating with these people didn't make any sense. See, they had forever used rejection as a tool to force people to change. And if they wouldn't change, then forget them. But Jesus used acceptance as a tool, or better yet, as a context for helping people change. Now let me just ask, 
Which sounds more like your approach? Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why do you, does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what? I'm pretty sure that that's the same question the disciples had been asking themselves ever since Jesus took up with this new guy, Matthew. The disciples, who weren't any too fond of tax collectors themselves, one of them was a zealot, people who liked to kill tax collectors we're probably wondering, why is Jesus doing this? When in verse 12, Jesus learns what the Pharisees were saying, his answer seems to me to be as much for the disciples as for the Pharisees, or more. And that's especially clear in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I wonder what Jesus' critics thought of that answer. Frankly, I don't think they found it very helpful. This was not the way things were done. I mean, there were rules to keep, traditions to maintain. I mean, who does Jesus think he is? Does he know better than Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai? You know, when we read this account, almost no one ever sympathizes with the Pharisees. But I do. I understand them. They just wanted to do everything right. And right was the way it had always been done. And whatever else one might say about Jesus, he didn't do things the way they'd always been done. That was the constant criticism lodged against him. Why do your disciples, this is Matthew chapter 15, why do your disciples, and by implication you, break the traditions of the elders? The Pharisees had a verse in their Bible that Jesus didn't have in his. Thou shalt do it the way it's always been done. You know, for some of you, that's your life verse. And there's something to be said for that attitude. It protects a person from getting caught up in every new fad. Some people do. Being tossed back and forth, this is St. Paul, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men. There's safety in doing the things the way we've always done them. But there's also risk. Risk that we will mistake tradition for God's word. Risk that we will overlook what God is doing in the present because we insist that he do it as he's done it in the past. There's a risk that our habits will trump God's heart. Now, if I were Jesus and people were complaining about, and complaining is not strong enough a word, were challenging, disparaging, condemning my methods, I would feel defensive. I would probably say to myself, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. I can't win. But that was only the beginning. See, the Pharisees were one thing. They were always up in arms about something. But then people Jesus considered allies began challenging him. Look at verse 34. They said to him, and Matthew's gospel makes it very clear that they were not the Pharisees, but the disciples of John the Baptist. They, John's disciples, said to him, John's disciples, we often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. As is so often the case, there's so much more here than what is said. 
This is not an observation, it's an allegation. At best, they want to call Jesus' attention to what they believe is a grave oversight on his part. At worst, they're accusing him of hypocrisy. They were as certain as they were about anything that a person who was serious about God would practice fasting. Now, there's a backstory to this. The law of Moses imposed only one fast on the Jewish people. Only one, one time a year on the Day of Atonement. But kings and prophets had sometimes called people to fast as a way of humbling themselves before God. By New Testament times, many pious Jews fasted regularly, not once a year on the Day of Atonement, but twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And they even, many, refused to drink water on those days. Remember Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector? When the Pharisee starts recounting the evidence of his great spiritual superiority, the first thing that comes to his mind is that he fasts twice a week. So, of course, what happened was this. The people who fasted liked to think of themselves as the ones who were serious about God and to think about the people who didn't as those who weren't. Sort of religious underclass. Oh, he doesn't fast. For them, it was axiomatic. Pious people fast. Impious people don't. That's all there is to it. And then they ran up against Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, fasted for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. Do you realize Scripture never mentions him fasting again? John's disciples state plainly, especially you see this in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus' disciples don't fast. They don't do it. And what's more, Jesus didn't correct them. He didn't say, oh, well, you don't know what they do. So how did Jesus' lack of fasting fit with this absolute certainty that good people fast? Jesus answers them in verse 34. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they'll fast. Now, that might not be clear to us, but it made perfect sense to Jesus' hearers. In the first century, a Jewish wedding celebration, a Jewish wedding, really, lasted about a week. And it was a time of feasting and dancing. To refuse to eat at a wedding feast, even for the sake of a religious fast, would be totally inappropriate. It would be an insult to the bride and groom. More than that, even, it was against the rules to fast or to even mourn the dead during a wedding feast. In this analogy, Jesus pictures himself as the bridegroom. And by the way, if you could transport a first century wedding guest forward in time to a 21st century wedding, the thing that would probably surprise him the most would be that the bride is now the center of attention. In the first century, and in historical terms, until relatively recently, the most prominent person at a wedding was always the groom. Jesus pictures himself as the groom. And as long as he's there, his disciples can't fast. It would just be out of place. Now, look at the two stories Jesus tells next. They're sometimes called the parable of the entrant cloth and of the new wineskins. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, don't think match in terms of color. Color's all the same. They don't match because the new garment is unshrunk. 
and the old garment has shrunk as much as it's going to shrink. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. How do those stories relate to the issues that have just been raised? They do. The issues of dining with sinners or fasting by oneself. Rules about eating and rules about fasting were woven into the fabric of religious life in Jesus' time. And many people wore that fabric quite comfortably, like a favorite old shirt. They sipped on the rules like a fine and mellow wine that made them feel good, feel righteous, comfortable, even superior. But Jesus knew that the purpose of true religion is not to make people feel good, to feel righteous and comfortable and superior, but to be good, or as he put it, to love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love their neighbors as themselves. Now, the coming of the Son of God was earth-shaking. It was the pivotal moment in the history of the world, the hinge upon which everything turns. Jesus brought something new, and he understood that he couldn't patch up the old practices with the new material. Were he to do that, he knew that it would cause even worse tears in the old practices. He came with new wine, but he knew that he couldn't pour it into the old wineskins, into the old forms that were entrenched into first century Judaism. Those practices couldn't hold the richness of life that Jesus brought. They'd burst. These two stories make the same point. It would be foolish to tear cloth from a new shirt to sew it onto an old one. For one thing, you'd ruin the new shirt. And for another, the old shirt's gone through so many washes that it's done shrinking. But the patch from the new shirt will shrink, and when it does, it will leave a bigger hole than the one that was there in the first place. And only a fool would pour new wine into old wineskins. New wine expands as it ferments. So it needs to be kept in a wineskin that can expand with it. But old wineskins have already been stretched as far as they're going to go. They've lost their elasticity. Fill them up with new wine, and at some point, they're going to burst, and the wine will spill out. The religious practices of Jesus' day had lost their elasticity. They couldn't hold the vibrant, growing kingdom life that Jesus had introduced. The Sabbath rules of the first century are a good example. There were over 600 of them. 600 rules about what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath day, and those rules were brittle. They couldn't hold this vigorous life of loving God and people that Jesus introduced. And so they kept breaking. And of course, when they broke, people were not very happy. It was Jesus' frequent disregard for the Sabbath rules that brought on him the wrath of the religious establishment and led directly to his crucifixion. Now, in the stories of the patch and the wineskin, as well as in the illustration about fasting at a wedding reception, there are these things that don't mix. You don't fast during a feast. You don't sew a new patch on an old shirt. You don't pour new wine into an old wineskin. Jesus is making clear that his way doesn't mix with the way the Pharisees and others were practicing. But he understood how the Pharisees felt. I think he was sympathetic, verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. That's human nature. 
We stick with what we know. Jesus understood how hard it is for people to change, to be open to new ways of doing things, to believe that the new ways have anything good to offer. A while back, I was meeting Nick Swallow, who leads the 20-something ministry Roots uh, at a coffee shop, and he told me that he, he really liked this song and he wanted me to listen to it. <clears throat> it was by a Christian rap artist. So I got into his car and I listened to this song. And when it was over, he asked me what I thought. And I tried to phrase my words carefully. <laughs> I said, you know what? I, I recognize that what he does takes real talent. And the words are good, and I'm glad he's doing it. But I find it difficult to appreciate the music. You know what I was thinking? The old is better. You know, give me the Beatles. Or, or give me Artie Shaw, or give me J.S. Bach. The old is better. Now, you may be thinking, well, maybe, but at least we're not like the Pharisees were with their inflexible ways of doing things. Really? What would happen if, if next Sunday morning I said, hey, look, we're going to abandon Sunday school now so that we can start holding small groups on Sunday mornings? Or what if we tried to get everyone to use the latest edition of a popular Bible version? From now on, we're all going to use the same edition. Or try organizing the congregation around caring teams. What will people say? They'll say, we've never done it that way before. The old way is better. You know, sometimes the old way is better. When it comes to rap music, the old way is better, you know. <laughs> sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just different. But let's be careful not to tie God's hands by our traditions. The God who designed every snowflake to be unique is infinitely creative, and he's a great innovator. He gives people surprising, groundbreaking assignments. He sent the apostle Peter to a Gentile military man to tell him about Jesus and baptize his family into the faith. His colleagues gasped when they heard about it. And I'm sure they said, We've never done it that way before. He sent the Apostle Paul to run a school building in the world center for pagan goddess worship so that he could teach goddess-worshipping heathens about the Jewish Messiah. Some of his contemporaries were aghast and said, We've never done it that way before. Why don't you put me on this and take me off of that? He sent a young monk named Martin Luther to nail 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. His colleagues were angry and said, we've never done it that way before. He sent William Carey to the Hindus in India. The church back home couldn't understand why he would ever do such a thing and complained, we've never done it that way before. He sent Hudson Taylor to China where he grew his hair long, tied it in a ponytail, donned a robe and sandals and learned Mandarin. The British expatriate community was outraged. And even some of his fellow missionaries said, we've never done it that way before. But the issue is not whether we've ever done it that way before, but is Jesus doing it that way now? It's not whether this way is consistent with our past practice, but whether it's consistent with God's word. A Christian who gets stuck in his ways may find himself stuck outside of Jesus' ways. You know, I think the most disconcerting thing about this passage is this. The Pharisees, and perhaps even the disciples of John, 
actually felt superior to Jesus because they were holding to tradition, and he wasn't. That feeling should have been warning enough to them to evaluate their ways. See, it's possible to feel superior to other people when you're holding close to tradition, but it's impossible to feel superior when you're holding close to God. A person may disagree with another person and believe wholeheartedly that he's right and the other person's wrong. He may rebuke him and renounce him. He may stand his ground and still be right where God wants him. But it's impossible for him to feel superior or to act arrogantly when he's holding close to God. Now let me conclude this by going back to Matthew. He's sitting in that tax collector's booth. I'm sure he wants forgiveness for his sins and purpose for his life and hope for his future. One day, Jesus, who had, I think, probably often greeted him, read the end of Matthew chapter 5. A rabbi greeting a tax collector is unthinkable, but I think he said hi to him many times, perhaps even talked and joked with him. And one day he said to him, Levi Matthew, follow me. Then he had a choice to make. He couldn't follow Jesus and stay where he was. Following Jesus meant leaving some things behind, things that had been very important to him. And the scripture says, he got up, he left everything, and he followed Jesus. Look, if Jesus has been calling you, maybe for the first time, maybe to some new service, you'll have to leave some things behind too. I guarantee it. Maybe resentments, unforgiveness, pride. It'll mean change. Are you ready for that? If so, it's time to get up and follow Jesus. Let's pray. I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you just didn't walk by Matthew and look the other way. And I thank you that you didn't walk by me and look the other way. That's not who you are. Lord, when you walk by, help us not to look the other way. Avoid your eyes. And close up our ears because we're afraid. No, call us to what you have for us and give us courage to follow. And I ask this, Jesus, because of who you are and what you've done.